welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is JF. When I was very young, I was friends and neighbors with a little girl my age named Christine. Her dad, I think, was a firefighter. One of my earliest memories is of going camping with that family. I was about three years old at the time. There are actually two memories, two scenes that have stayed with me from that trip. The first is of sitting in a rowboat while my friend's dad silently rowed us across the lake. The second is of that morning when I awoke in their tent. My friend and her parents lay huddled together asleep a few feet away from me. What's strange is that they weren't human. They looked like apes, or more accurately, like members of a hominid species that hasn't walked the earth for two million years. Homo erectus, maybe. I was terrified, but I couldn't look away. Slowly, as I watched... They reassumed human forms, and then they were just people again. It was a hypnagogic experience, a hallucination, but also, oddly, a vision that made Darwin's theory of evolution perfectly palatable when I was introduced to it a few years later. But then it also gave credence to stories I would later hear about werewolves, skinwalkers, and other shapeshifters. Fantasy or not, The experience seemed to be telling me something about the world, namely that all things were possible. The memory is what it is. I can't change it. Nor can I dispel the feeling that it was somehow paranormal in nature. Maybe you have a memory of this kind stored somewhere in a trunk at the back of your mind. Most of us do. The question is, what do we do with such memories? What do we do with experiences that don't conform to the ontological model we've been told holds everywhere and for all time in this physical universe where the imagination, to say nothing of the imaginal, has no legitimate place? This is a question that our guest today, Professor Jeffrey J. Kripal, has been asking in his work for many years. Jeffrey is the J. Newton Razor Professor of Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University in Houston, Texas. In brilliant scholarly works such as The Serpent's Gift, Authors of the Impossible, Mutants and Mystics, Supernatural, which he co-wrote with Whitley Strieber, and many other books, Jeffrey has been gazing deeply into the abyss that most modern scholars choose to whistle past, the abyss of the paranormal and the sacred, which he interprets not as metaphors or heuristic models, but as real dimensions of an ontological reality we are barely beginning to comprehend. His career has more than intellectual significance, as evidenced by the letters he receives and the experiencers he often collaborates with, it has a reparative, almost therapeutic quality, since it encourages us to reclaim the power of the imagination, which in light of his research simply can't be subtracted from the equation of the real. Jeffrey was kind enough to join Phil and me for a discussion on the nature of the paranormal and the challenges faced by scholars who want to take it seriously in the current intellectual climate. We hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, when I first started getting interested in this territory and started having my own experiences in that realm, you know, the first thing you do when you're an academic is you start looking around to see what what books are there? Who's written about this? And I discovered your books, and I think I'm probably not the only one who would say that it was not only like fascinating and that I devoured these books hungrily, but also that I found it 
I don't know if comforting is the right word. I found it reassuring. I think it's easy when you're an academic, especially, to feel a little alone. If you're interested in this stuff at all, much less if you've had any kind of like supernormal experiences in this terrain, I don't need to tell you. There are all kinds of inhibitions against talking about these kinds of things in any kind of academic setting. Discovering somebody who just didn't seem to have any fucks to give, like willing to talk about this stuff in a totally, not in the slightly heuristic as if, let's talk about this as if it maybe it's possible that some of this might not be completely nonsense, but like willingness to say, I've had some strange fucking experiences and let me tell you about them. That was like hugely inspiring to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my main audience, of course, is people like us. I'm trying to tease this out of the closet. My, my experience lecturing on this stuff is that there's a lot of academics in the closet on these things. I mean, they're, they're very sympathetic and they want to talk about it, but they're, they're just afraid to. And uh, so we need to talk about that as well, why we're afraid to and whether we need to be afraid, you know. Well, you know, I wanted to start there because actually when I was writing up some notes for our conversation, I found myself using the expression, the Gnostic closet. And there is a kind of a Gnostic closet. And it seems like very particularly, it's not just having religious belief or some religious commitments. Although I know from some of my students, for example, that that alone can be difficult enough to bring up in mixed company. Uh, but the Gnostic part of it is several steps beyond in terms of discomfort like it's one thing to say yeah i am faithful to the church that i was brought up in it's quite another thing to say i have had personal encounters with god i have had personal encounters with the daimonic that's an order of magnitude beyond what people are comfortable talking about yeah, that was an understatement yeah yeah, so, so do, do you get a lot of people writing to you or communicating with you from within academia about these kinds of experiences? Oh, yeah. My files are a couple feet thick mm. from people writing me about their own experiences and what to do with them and how to negotiate those in the academy in particular. That's, that's sort of become my, um, I, I suppose, my vocation in life is to work with particularly young intellectuals around how to negotiate the professional life and the academic life, or in some cases, the public life, and still retain some connection to these, these deeper wellsprings. That's a real challenge, but I think it's possible. What's your theory as to the reasons why phenomena that are so widespread, so common, I'm not, I don't work in academia, but just in my own field, in the arts, I don't think I've ever brought up the subject without someone telling me, oh, yeah, this one thing happened to me this one time. Why do you think it's still so difficult to discuss these things? Why is the numinous so uh, taboo even today when within this age of communication and sharing and, and quote unquote openness that we, you know, this hyper communicative age? How can this stuff still remain so frowned upon, at least by the little superego in our minds? Well, I, yeah, I don't think it's just in our minds. I think that there are real public and professional consequences for speaking about these things. Um, and sometimes those can be severe, but they're usually not. They're usually uh, less severe. I don't know. I think there are at least, I'm just thinking out loud here, I think there are at least four reasons that pop into my head right away. Um, I think the first reason is that these are not just extremely common. I actually think they're universal. I, I think these sorts of abilities and experiences happen all over the world and have always happened all over the world as far back as we can see with our historical lenses. And uh, as any academic in the humanities would tell you, there aren't supposed to be any universals anymore. But this is clearly one of them. So that's point number one. Point number two is a lot of these experiences are um, negative or at least potentially negative. Um, they're terrifying. Um, they come with a kind of daimonic or even demonic quality that I think just gets so easily slotted into our Christian theological background that 
they immediately become suspect. Even when people are entirely secular or even atheistic, there's a kind of monotheistic logic in the background that is fundamentally against all of these experiences because they emerge from a kind of magical or animistic or polytheistic worldview. Mm. So I think there's that. The third and fourth reason are, are sort of related. I think because of that monotheistic logic, these kinds of experiences are extremely challenging to almost all religious worldviews. So despite the fact that these experiences probably lie at the origins of religious beliefs, they also deconstruct and challenge any kind of fossilized doctrinal system around them. Right. And so they get hit on the religious side. And then they also get hit from the other side, of course, the scientific or better uh, scientific side, in which they clearly violate a kind of mechanistic materialism that seems to be the, the metaphysical assumption these days in a lot of the sciences. And so they just can't seem to get any break anywhere you look, except, and this is important, in popular culture, mm. um, where they make billions of dollars every year in the form of film and fiction and graphic novels and, and you name it. I mean, popular culture essentially is paranormal. We allow it in an entertainment context because we can say, oh, we're just entertaining ourselves. It's not really real. But we can't really step in front of the curtain anywhere in the culture yet and say, hey, I think these things actually happen. And, and I think we should talk about it. Yeah, that's, that's an important theme in your work, this idea that science fiction and, and pop culture in general are basically ways for us to talk about these things without talking about them, you know, and uh, ways for us to share this culture without somehow investing any real, I don't know, political or metaphysical charge, you know, like it's kind of a way for us to get away with believing without believing or the, the tricksterish thing that's going on in, in the arts that allows you to embody a mode of being without without reifying it or without making a claim to its absolute correctness you know like it, do you see the arts as a, a communication tool in that sense a way oh to, my God. yeah oh, oh yeah I mean in some ways it's just it depends on what kind of art you're talking about I mean one of the things I often say in an attempted humorous fashion is that Religion at its worst is art that has forgotten its art. Yeah. Uh, and religion at its best is art that knows its art, but also knows that it's communicating with something very, very real through the art. But, you know, that kind of art is so rare. And, I, you know, the other, the other sort of elephant in the living room here is the imagination and the way we just completely lack any theory of the imagination uh, as an organ of revelation or cognition, and how we just immediately slot the imagination as the imaginary or the fictitious. We just have no way of appreciating the imaginal or, or fantastic forms these experiences take without either sliding into naive literal belief or a kind of debunking imaginary mode. We don't have any way of thinking or talking about the imagination as essentially true, but still as imagined. Hmm. And that's, I think that's a huge problem. I get, let me give you a, just a simple, but I think telling example. So a few years ago, I gathered a bunch of actually academics to uh, Esalen and Big Sur, and I, I asked them to do two things in preparation for the, the symposium. I asked them to tell us the story of the most extraordinary thing that ever happened to them. And then I asked them to provide some theory of the imagination that would make such an event possible. And what was so remarkable was every single academic had some drop your jaw, you know, holy shit kind mm -hmm. of experience that was just unbelievable. But no one had a theory of the imagination. Hmm. No one could offer any intellectual framework in which that would be possible. 
Everybody just falls back on Coleridge or something, you know, the primary and secondary. Like if there's such a paucity, it's true, of theories of the imagination in the literature. It's crazy now that you mention it. Yeah, I mean, in my own field, the study of religion, we don't even talk about symbols anymore. The symbol is out, you know. Mm. It's all metaphor and, you know, cognitive templates and, you know, we've become computers or something. Right. There's no sense of the symbolic anymore in the sense of something that is clearly not literally true, but is somehow participating in that which it's pointing toward. I mean, we're all kind of caught in a kind of postmodern, you know, everything's a sign and it's all relative and it's all deconstructed and it ultimately means absolutely nothing. Well, it seems to me that when you get these two things come together, you have on the one hand extraordinary experience and on the other hand an inability or refusal to theorize about that experience. When you have these two things come together, well, I, I guess I would ask you what kinds of things happen as a result. I can tell you what I think might happen or what I what I see happening is a whole lot of people taking some of the most extraordinary things that have ever happened to them and trying very hard to forget them or shoving them into a kind of an intermediate mental or inner classification, almost like a filing cabinet stuck in a back room somewhere with a label miscellaneous slash other crudely pasted over it kind of a systematic forgetting. It seems to me that when someone like you comes along and starts writing about these things in a pretty unembarrassed and open way, it wouldn't surprise me that you would get a lot of people sending you confidential messages trying to work through these things because it's just sort of like, oh, you know, I read this book and it reminded me of like the most amazing thing that ever happened to me, which I somehow have managed to almost completely forget about. Well, yeah, that's exactly what happens. But I but I think the other thing to emphasize there is, you know, people ask me a lot. I mean, I do a lot of these interviews. And the question I get asked a lot is, how have you dealt with all the pushback or all the criticism? And, you know, I have to say I, I haven't gotten any. I mean, that's not quite true. There's been pushback from some of the scientific community. But even that's really rare. Mostly I've gotten deep appreciation and enthusiasm for this particular work. And I think it's because, you know, people are really, really tired of the kind of relativism and refusal to speculate metaphysically that we went through for 30 or 40 years there. And they're really ready to try to say something positive now and to kind of move forward. And my concern about not speculating about this and about not theorizing is that if we don't theorize it, if we don't offer other speculative ontologies, then the dials will just automatically go back to this kind of reductive materialism that we're caught in. It's not an option to be neutral here. You know, some of my colleagues want to talk about methodological agnosticism, which won't mean, any, mean anything to anybody not in the academy. But basically what it means is you don't take a position on what's actually going on here. You just describe and describe and historicize. My reply to them is no. That's just a way of recommitting ourselves to reductive materialism again. Because if we don't challenge our own metaphysical view of the world, it'll just return to what it is now. We, we have to offer something better. And the other thing I say a lot is we have to offer something positive. We can't just keep deconstructing and keep tearing things apart. I mean, that's, that's an important task. I want us to do that, but we have to then move beyond that and actually offer something that's constructive and, and God forbid, hopeful and and maybe even cosmic, because that I think is what these experiences ultimately point to is some kind of some kind of human nature that is not even human at the end of the day. It's somehow way, way beyond what we think of, of as human. And so, for example, the transhumanists or the posthumanists, I, I mean, I think the, the intentions are good, but they just don't go far enough. They just don't they don't take this stuff seriously. And so that we end up with Again, some kind of materialism or, or some kind of uh, ethical environmentalism, but we don't really 
take these transcendents, for example, seriously. I like your emphasis on optimism. Because one thing that uh, strikes me about these kinds of experiences, even when they're horrible, even when they're terrifying, there's still kind of a good news to them. Actually, uh, JF and I talked about this when we were talking about The Shining once on this show. Stanley Kubrick said that The Shining was for him an optimistic film, which is <laughs> sounds crazy, right? Because it's a horrifying film. But it's sort of like, yeah, but, you know, if these kinds of spiritual presences, however malevolent, exist, then that opens up the universe a little bit. It makes it a little bit wider and more capacious. Absolutely. I One of my closest colleagues in the field is a, the Dutch historian, Wouter Honegroff, and hmm. he used to uh, tease me all the time because I was, for a, year, a few years back, I was giving this lecture in Europe and the States on the Mothman, you know, this basically this nine-foot, you know, Batman that like lands on teenager cars and just scares the shit out of a whole town and (laughs) ends up somehow being weirdly involved in the collapse of a a bridge tragedy. And Dr. was like, Jeff, what on earth is positive about that? And I thought about it. And of course the tragedy is not positive, but I thought about what draws people to the Mothman phenomena. And it's exactly that it's, it's liberating to want to live in a world in which there are fantastic creatures in the world that cannot be tamed, that they cannot be reduced and put in a cage and put in a zoo. It's somehow, it's expansive, it's ecstatic. And horror here becomes holy, right? Horror Fear, I mean, one of the oldest and most consistent human responses to the sacred is actually fear. It's not warm, fuzzy feeling. It's fear. And I think the reason the ancient human response to the sacred is fear is because it dissolves our sense of who we are and what reality is. And that that is both ecstatic but it's also terrifying and i and i think that's all wrapped up in these experiences yeah yeah it's i think one of the, the characteristics of our times is that we we're poor in possibles and it seems like even a, a demonic encounter at least affirms a wide field of possibility and there's room in that for all kinds of transformations you don't know what could happen next after that it's like it's, it's funny because you were talking about how pop culture, in a way, has served as a conduit for some of these phenomena to, you know, at least be communicated through the population. But at the same time, I guess the negative side of that is that people tend to think, oh, that's just comic book stuff. You know, they, they dismiss it because it's in pop culture. Right. I remember when The Matrix came out and all these philosophers who'd been working on theories or I mean, philosophers, I'm talking about like Gnostic underground type writers who had been arguing for something like the Matrix. It was kind of disappointing for them to see the Matrix come out because all of a sudden, whenever they would you know, present their theory, people would say, oh, you just saw the Matrix and you're taking it seriously. So there's this like double thing going on. But when it happens in your life, when something like that happens to you, it's like I remember like this is not a paranormal event, but it was I think it, you could argue that it was uh, 9-11. When that was happening, it was so surreal and so fantastic and so unexpected and surprising and shocking that people were saying it felt like I was in a movie. And what they mean by that, in a sense, may be something like it felt like the possibilities that I intuit, that I that I perceive in great works of storytelling were manifesting in reality, whereas I was there thinking that those things were simply impossible. It's like the paranormal allows us to reconceive or reimagine our world as a kind of drama, right? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the argument of authors of the impossible. Right. This, this, I mean, the the way I frame that sort of as a, as a soundbite is, you know, the subtitle of the, of the book is something like, reading the paranormal writing us Hmm. and it it tries to get at exactly what you're saying that the reason people so often say it was like i was in a movie or it was like i was a character in a novel is that that was a moment in their life in which they realized 
that which is always the case. Right. You know, we, we in fact are characters in a novel or a movie that we ourselves and our ancestors scripted and wrote and produced and are now directing. And to the extent that a paranormal experience or event awakens us to that reality, we can then rewrite the script, change the movie, change the novel. But we can't do that until we realize that we're actually in a movie. And, and so that the realization is both negative in the sense, oh, shit, I'm in a movie and I don't even like it. It's kind of cheesy or it's violent or it's ugly. But it's also hopeful in the sense, hey, we can, we can do this better. Hmm. And I think that's exactly what the paranormal is about, is awakening us, kind of taking us backstage to see how the culture and our own psyches are, are being scripted and projected. Right. The best example of this, you've probably heard me say this or read it or something, but it's still, it's the best one I've got is, you know, Whitley Strieber, this horror writer and abductee I worked with so closely over the years. We were once asking him about these very questions and he kind of went into this, he gets in these sort of trance riffs And he went on and he said, you know, I understand perfectly well that everything I saw and experienced in my abduction experiences in the late 80s were partly based on the bad science fiction movies I saw in the 1950s and 60s. He says, I know that. But there was still something very real there communicating to me through these bad B movies. And so then he says... So what we need to do now as a culture is make better science fiction movies. (laughs) Hmm. I just thought that was brilliant because he was affirming the way our paranormal experiences are constructed by culture, but he was also saying, hey, we need to do this better now so that our descendants can have better experiences and they can live in a better world than we do. And there was no there was no escape from that loop, right? I mean, it's a loop that we're all caught in, as it were. But he had somehow acknowledged that and affirmed that and wanted to be a better writer and be a better filmmaker to 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 make a better world. Well, this interests me greatly because among other things, it outlines a kind of transformative if that's the word I'm looking for, Gnostic sort of role within academia. Because if what we're after is, as he says, better science fiction, this ties back to what we were talking about before. Why is it important to theorize experience? Why is it important to play around with our metaphysics, to imagine possible context for this extraordinary things that happen to us, that happen to a surprising number of us? I would like to think that doing the kind of things that we're doing right now in the show, spitballing ideas about these fantastic realms, that that is actually contributing something to that project. It's not the New Age Nostrum, oh, well, we're just creating our own reality, but neither are we just mere pawns in a kind of iron-bound, deterministic, uh, mechanistic, material universe. We're kind of co-creating with the universe, so we're being written, and we are uh, we are being written into existence, even as we are rewriting our existence. I think that's exactly right, and you know, I actually think the New Age got a lot of things right, and like any social movement, it simplified things and exaggerated things. You know, this this mantra that we create our own reality. I think that's essentially true. I think it got that right. Where I think a lot of the New Age writers or teachers, I think, kind of go wrong on that is it it becomes too individualistic. There's not an awareness that that reality is created socially and in collectives, and that even language itself and the psyche itself are collectively created. There's no no one person does that. And I think that's where, you know, the humanities and and the arts can really contribute here by really emphasizing that collective project. On the other hand, I do think individuals, particularly super charismatic or super genius level individuals, do actually end up changing reality. Oh, yeah. 
I I think I think this is one of the things that we've done wrong in the postmodern term. We've done a lot of things right, but I think one of the things we did wrong was we we somehow demonized or denied the the genius figure or the the single individual that ends up really changing a whole civilization, which of course is exactly what you see in the history of religions over and over again. Uh, you know, it happens. So um, I think, you know, I think obviously it's both. So well, I just say, let me say one more thing there. I mean, I just finished this book with this woman here in Houston named Elizabeth Crone, who in 1988 was struck by lightning and had this incredible near-death experience and then came back with new capacities, like the ability to dream the future and see electromagnetic fields around the human body. But the basic argument that I make in my half of the book is that by engaging near-death experiences or near-death narratives like Elizabeth's, which we've been doing since about 1975 now, we are in fact changing the afterlife. We are in actual fact re-scripting how people who have these sorts of experiences in the present and the future will have these experiences. And, and again, I really believe that. I, I, so I don't think we're just re-scripting the way the three of us are talking right now or what we do in our family lives or our professional lives. We're also re-scripting what happens to us immediately after we die, hmm. you know, which is pretty scary on one level and pretty awesome on another. Right, right. So... You often, you know, call us to have the courage to engage once more in real metaphysical speculation, which I, I applaud that. I think that's so true and important. So let's speculate a little bit because I have a question. So if you say that we create our own realities, are you are you arguing that even at the physical stratum, that humans or whatever humans actually are, are creating reality? Or are you talking more in terms of we shape the events that happen to us according to these kind of fundamental structural laws that govern the universe? I know it's a big question. I just, I'm just curious to know how you'd answer it quickly. Well, so I think the traditional humanities would say, oh, Jeff, you must mean that the subjective experience of reality is what changes and you're really just talking about the language and the cultural forms in which a person or community creates their own subjective and, of course, entirely illusory experiences. But actually, I'm not saying that. I mean, I think that's all true enough, but I also think we do somehow intersect and interact with physical reality. And I think that's why these paranormal experiences are taboo again, because if you look at them long enough, what you realize is that they all involve at least two orders of existence. There's this subjective mental realm in which the experiencer is experiencing the, the paranormal effect. But there's also something happening in the physical environment. The physical world is literally becoming symbolic or meaningful to this person. And it's actually behaving with objects and things in ways that look remarkably like a dream or look remarkably like a novel or something. So you can't actually remove that objective dimension from such events, nor can you remove the subjective dimension. There's something about these events that is both subjective and objective at the same time. I would just insist on both. And now can I, you know, <laughs> manifest you know, a rabbit out of my hat, you know, that's not a trick. No, I'm not talking about something that silly. But I have to say, I've heard some very strange stories about things like teleporting honey jars and, you know, saints levitating that do suggest that physical laws are being uh, manipulated or or something is being done to to change the way physical reality works. And the other thing I can say, you know, because I've, I've spent a lot of time with physicists, particularly quantum physicists, I don't claim to understand their physics, much less their quantum theorizing. But what I know from spending months and months with them is that it's a real 
open question in quantum physics what role observation or consciousness has in how reality behaves, even in the laboratory. It's not settled. Right. Um, and the standard, what they call the Copenhagen interpretation, actually does say that observation is what collapses the wave function, to use their language, and which essentially causes reality to behave in a particular kind of way. So, again, I don't know if that's the correct interpretation, but neither do they. No one does. But the point is, is that what quantum physicists are describing is actually all of physical reality. And if they have to leave open the question of whether mind affects or impacts the behavior of physical reality, then I think we should too. I think we should stop saying silly things based on physics as it existed in 1850 and, and kind of, you know, live in the, live in the modern world and, and listen to these people. And I think we should be doing that in the humanities, frankly. I think humanists often work with a kind of physical worldview that made sense in 1850, but was completely demolished by the 1920s. Right. And yeah. We, we haven't caught up. We just keep saying stupid things like like we live in a mechanical, you know, uh, materialistic worldview and, and things are bouncing around in empty space. And that, that that's just not what the physics is telling us anymore. this creates an interesting pedagogical challenge. I just got done teaching a seminar, the first seminar on this kind of topic that I've done. So it's a doctoral seminar called Music and Esoteric Studies, a very broad attempt to grasp some things about the Western esoteric tradition and to understand what kind of place music might have in that. It's a challenge for me teaching a class like that. You know, there are any number of challenges involved in teaching this material that you wouldn't have teaching kind of more, I don't know, normal stuff. And one of the challenges is that kind of defaulting to the worldview that you got from your like sophomore year biology class. And I'm not necessarily talking about my students here, but I'm, this is experiences I've had as a professional academic. People who talk a good line, like they've read Bruno Latour and they can talk a good line about how like science itself is socially constructed and blah, blah, blah. They will say that for the purposes of, um, you know, this is sort of like this kind of agnosticism you were talking about a while ago. They will adopt that point of view for the purpose of making arguments in print. And then the moment they're not engaged in that kind of an activity, they'll go back to just assuming the world works the way they learned about it in sophomore biology class. And so, you know, in teaching students in a class like this, there's a challenge. Actually, I was rereading a part of your Serpent's Gift before we got cracking today, and there's this really interesting riff in there about C. Mackenzie Brown's idea of a classroom of sympathy and a classroom of doubt. And you make the point, which I really like, that every classroom is both a classroom of sympathy and a classroom of doubt. And you posit perhaps a, a third way, something beyond a simple dualism, a, what you call agnostic classroom, which I find super interesting and I wanted to ask you about. But it seemed to me that in working with this material with students, you're constantly having to move between classroom of sympathy and classroom of doubt. And the first move is always towards sympathy because students are going to, whatever their background, they're going to come into a classroom with all kinds of reasons to think that all of this stuff is bullshit. Even if, as we've said before, even if they've had extraordinary experiences, having an extraordinary experience does not predict that you're going to be any more sympathetic to thinking about it. I mean, you know, even the opposite. And so you need to figure out just some way of like allowing people to soften around what they think they know about the physical universe and how it works and the relationship between matter and mind. But then at the same time, 
partly because, as we were saying before, in the earlier part of this conversation, there is this deep and repressed yearning for people to give expression to a part of themselves that has been amputated, that they've been forced to kind of stick in a long disused filing cabinet somewhere. Uh, there's this yearning to believe if that comes out, then you find people want to believe just a little too much. Then all of a sudden, you've got to switch modes. You've got to bust out the classroom of doubt. So this is a this is a problem of, among other things of pedagogy, which I suppose leads me to ask you: Would you still think in terms of a gnostic classroom? I know that Serpent's Gift is, is not your most recent book, but I'm curious to know a little bit about your own thinking about pedagogy. Well, yeah, I've thought a lot about pedagogy because that's what I spend, you know, most of my professional life doing is teaching. And yeah, I'm still very committed to a Gnostic classroom, you know, in particular contexts. I mean, we all do a lot of different kinds of teaching. And when I'm teaching an introductory course, of course, I don't expect that. Although it happens in private moments sometimes with students, you know, who write me or want to talk after class. But generally, I don't expect that to happen in an introductory course. But in an advanced undergraduate course or a graduate course, this Gnostic space I was trying to articulate is actually really important to me. And it, it takes the very simple form of being open and honest about not just the extraordinary experiences of our historical subjects, but also of ourselves and learning ways to talk about them that are both smart, but also speculative and not just debunking or, or immediately reductive. So, you know, that's essentially what I meant by that Gnostic space is something that's not faith. You know, we're not being, we're not asking students to, believe x y or z but it's also not about pure reason either we're not just using reductionism and social the social sciences to explain everything away we're leaving this space open beyond those two epistemologies that that is much deeper and, and frankly much more attractive i think i think one of the reasons the humanities have been kind of declining the last decade or couple decades in essence, we deserve it. Yeah. Um, you know, I often joke, you know, when I give public lectures, I open it by saying, you know, a few years ago, I actually discovered the, the secret of truth in the humanities. And, and then I ask the audience if they want to hear it. Of course, they do. It's a joke, of course. But then I say, okay, here it is. The secret of all truth in the humanities is this. It must be depressing. Mm. And they... They always laugh. And the reason they laugh is they recognize immediately that it's true. Right. And, and I say, okay, someone, try to tell me something positive. Try to advance a truth in your discipline that is fundamentally positive. And, of course, they can't do it, you know, whether it's the historical method or deconstructionism or or some kind of moral critique, all of which are completely just and important, ultimately, they're not positive. They're, they're frankly depressing, usually. And so, again, that's why I think this material is so important, is because beyond the fear and beyond the, the taboos, what it ultimately is pointing toward is some kind of human nature that is essentially super. And that's a positive message. That's a that's something really quite amazing to say in our present context, that there's something essentially superhuman about the human. But it's not the possession of one person or one community or one culture. It's, in fact, universal. Well, that's positive, too. I think what turns young people on is, is actually offering them something that is true to their own experience of the world, but is also hopeful and positive. Not in a naive way. I mean, people forget I spent most of my career talking about sexual orientation and religion and just getting harassed and hounded and demonized for saying things that were obviously true. So I'm not, a, I'm not against critical models or even saying things that offend people. Quite the contrary. I think that's important, too. But I think 
we should be willing to do either or both depending on the circumstance that's that's a great point um the superhuman because speculation is kind of fair game again like you can actually speculate in philosophy departments again metaphysically you know we've called it speculative realism or the speculative turn or whatever of recent philosophy but a lot of that philosophy to me seems to not like humans very much i found that <laughs> there's a there are a lot of uh, post-human philosophers especially with a, a strong environmental bent who don't seem to see much potential in humanity at all it almost seems yeah. like the human should dissolve onto this flat ontological plane where it just becomes part of this imminent furniture that comprises the universe and should almost like um, in an act of erasure to erase ourselves from the equation of the cosmic. And you're putting forward something very different, something that, I mean, you mentioned that ultimately, from the perspective of the paranormal, ultimately the human reveals itself as something not human in any way that we've conceived so far. But at the same time, you're also saying that there's a great potential in humanity. And um, I'm not seeing that in a lot of the speculative work being done today. Does that resonate with you? That impression? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say the truth has to be depressing. Right. That's That's the criterion. And, you know... I bet you anywhere you look, that that is ultimately the message people will get. But the strange thing is that a lot of these speculative thinkers are using occult concepts, or they're, they're, maybe they're not embracing the paranormal in the sense that you are, but they are appropriating a lot of concepts from those traditions. Um, well, like Eugene Thacker, for example. Right, right. Or, uh, yeah, or Graham Harmon. Um but it seems like the ultimate goal is not to reveal some hidden positive potential in the human at all. I mean, there's no real contradiction between occultism and nihilism. There's there's a whole side of that tradition that seems to be to gravitate towards a kind of nihilistic stance. Um, this is probably this is probably why Lovecraft keeps coming up. This Lovecraft becomes like an alibi. For people who are like, okay, I'm going to talk about occult stuff, but don't think that I'm optimistic here. I'm going to I'm I'm going to take the model that will offer the most dismal possible prospects for human flourishing. But I think even that's a false move because I, I don't think that Lovecraft's fiction is nearly as pessimistic as uh, people make him out to be at all. I, there's there's a positive side to Lovecraft that's downplayed in the interest of serving this particular nihilist ideological stance. Yeah. Um, but that's beside the point. The, the, the thing is that though, what I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about, Jeff, is so we live in a time right now where the idea that reality is up for grabs and it's being made, at least metaphorically speaking, is very widespread. We, had the, we just did an episode on hyperstition, concept from the philosophy of Nick Land, and we talked about the whole Pepe phenomenon. I'm sure you've looked into this, the whole meme magic thing, the 4chan community that got together and claims to have magically brought Trump to power. And then we have the fake news thing going on and climate denial. And it seems like we live in a time where the idea of social construction from postmodernism combined with a bunch of other ideas have made for a new paradigm where real is whatever you can get away with. And I mean that both positively and negatively. But my point is, is this a sign that we're moving in the right direction? Or is there some ground on which we can stand and say, well, you can't just make it up. You know, at some point we have to realize that climate science is pointing in this direction and that's not something we can deny. Or, or should we embrace a new modality where we think, well, if we all get together and instantiate these particular occult practices, then the climate will change on its own. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to look at the political or historical yeah. ramifications of this sort of uh, philosophy. Oh, I totally hear you. And all those things concern me deeply. And that is definitely not what I'm saying. You know, so one of the ways that occult or paranormal phenomena get framed in my own field, study religion, is that it immediately gets linked with fascism and mm -hmm. the Nazis. It somehow always goes back to the Nazis. And 
again, I think that's a rhetorical strategy to sort of take down the conversation. And the way I respond to that is I always try to say, look, a badly used idea is not the same thing as a bad idea. And if you look at the history of how an idea is used, it's, of course, used in all kinds of ways. And the people who want to take down something just kind of cherry pick and always end up with the Nazis or with some fascist uh, intellectual or politician. And of course, that's true. That certainly happens. But they also have to ignore all of the other people who use the same exact idea to do all sorts of really positive things and really interesting things. So I, I think it's always a mixed bag. I think the answer to the fake news phenomena and that anything goes is that, of course, it doesn't. And that facts matter. Uh, there are such a thing as facts in terms of particularly the sciences. And that's why I've been so eager to really interact with the sciences in my discussion of these, these paranormal phenomena, because I think they are in some ways our best bet forward, not in the sense that science is going to solve everything and it can explain everything. Neither of those are true. But in the sense that it gives us some kind of basis in material reality, you know, from which we can think and converse about these other possibilities. Uh, and something like the paranormal, you know, I mean, it came right out of the sciences in 1903. It essentially referred to phenomena that could not be explained with any present scientific models, but were clearly still part of the natural world. And that the hope was is that someday the we could, you know, develop models that would, if not explain these things, at least involve them or take them in. I'm very concerned about what's happening in our culture. And I think, again, the postmodern turn brought us a lot of gifts that I would be the last person to deny. But on the other hand, when it becomes the only way of thinking and acting, it actually does lead to this kind of anything goes fake news phenomenon. And I find it extremely disturbing. And I think, you know, it speaks for itself where it's taken us. I, I think things are, are very fragile right now and, and quite dangerous. And I, I don't want to be any part of that. Right. I, I think that's exactly what as intellectuals we should be speaking against. But that doesn't mean that the idea that we co-create our reality is wrong. I don't know of any ideas that weren't used for really bad ends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of co-creation is dear to my heart at any rate. And something that JF and I have talked about quite a bit, you know, in our own sort of metaphysical speculations, I think one that has come up again and again and continues to be a kind of a bedrock idea that we keep returning to is the idea that the universe is, you know, you say, what is the fundamental nature of the universe? Is it material? Is it mind? One idea we keep returning to is the idea that the nature of the universe is aesthetic, that it's the universe is expression. There's a way that postmodern thinkers have the style of thought that we've spent a certain amount of time discussing here, where any idea of beauty, and I think beauty is something that also can be brought into the picture here. Uh, beauty is another idea that does not survive a kind of positivistic temper, just as the sort of village atheist type can always say, like, if God exists, then show me God, <laughs> like, bring him to me. Uh, likewise, you'd be surprised how often you get the same move in the humanities disciplines that exist to discuss art. Beauty doesn't exist. If it did show me beauty, you can't. Uh, it's only a construct, a thing that human beings have invented, usually for nefarious ends, for the purposes of domination and control. And beauty is always a thing that we are projecting onto the universe, that we claim to see in things much as we can claim to see a bunny rabbit in the clouds as they float by. And something that we've been kicking around a lot is the idea of like, no, the aesthetic is not something we are projecting onto the universe. In JF's book, he has a great line where he says, you know, we didn't create art, art created us. And in sort of an idea of like, yeah, we're not projecting the aesthetic onto the universe. The aesthetic is projecting us. 
that's an idea that I think is important and sort of parallel things you're talking about. Like any idea, any good idea can be used badly. The commonplace objection to occult or esoteric or magical, what have you, styles of thought is always to the reductio ad Hitlerum. It all leads back to the Nazis. Uh, the same stuff happens with art as well where aestheticism or like a prioritizing of the aesthetic dimension in art and in life in general, something beloved of the decadent artists, for example, of the late 19th century, that all of a sudden is put in the most sinister possible light. And you find people saying, oh, yes, well, you know, the late 19th century art religion or mysticism around art, that all leads to fascism. It's almost like a defense mechanism. Perhaps it all comes back to what you were saying before, like truth is whatever is most depressing. Uh, perhaps there is this sort of sense that if we ever exceed our allotment, our tiny little metaphysical allotment, that somehow that will lead us to some usually unspecified moral catastrophe for which fascism is a kind of convenient figure or almost kind of like a, uh, like a symbol of it. It, we're, we're still in the Garden of Eden, aren't we? And we got this really petty God telling us that, now don't you go eat that fruit of knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, horrible things will happen. And, and of course, the second tree there, which I point out in the book, is the tree that grants divinity, makes us gods. And of course, we never get to it because we get kicked out. We're just eating the fruit of the first tree. So... I think we're still afraid of our own supernatures, and mm. and we use all these mechanisms to essentially beat ourselves back. You know what else I think, though? I think this gets into a, boy, this is a deep one. I think what we're also afraid of, we're afraid of black magic. Mm. And if you look at the history of religions, there's always um, this fear of the magician or the shaman or the occultist because, of course, if you can, the mind can have some control over physical reality, ostensibly it could do bad things as easily as it could do good things. And, of mm -hmm. course, that is how a lot of magic has worked over the centuries, or that's how it purports to work. I think this idea that somehow the mind has some influence or control over physical reality is essentially terrifying to us because if I can move an object across a desk or I can blow out a, an electrical light bulb when I'm angry, what's to stop me from pulling a, a hose on your brakes when you're on the highway or right. or to slightly manipulate an aorta valve in your heart. I mean, and again, I'm not saying that that's possible, but I think that's the source of our fear of a lot of this stuff. Uh, I think it's very ancient, and I, I think we're completely unconscious of its sources, but it's not unreasonable either. I mean, I, you, it makes sense. It's just so deep and so ancient and so unconscious that I think we just don't have access to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's worth noting that a lot of societies that uh, have a pretty unquestioned assumption that magic is a thing, that it's a reality, that it works. I mean, for example, a book that we've name-checked a number of times in this show, E.E. E. Evans Pritchard's Witchcraft Among the Azande People. The Azande people take witchcraft, for them it's not occult, it's not exotic, it's not strange, it's not super normal at all. It is as normal as rainfall. Cultures like that, for which magic is taken for granted, people in those cultures often live in a state of constant paranoia about what might be being done to them. Yeah, and of course they accuse each other of black magic and all kinds of social injustices are enacted because of those beliefs too. So again, a badly used idea isn't the same as a bad idea. And just because cultures do bad things to people doesn't mean that people don't have these abilities. It, right. it just gets to the complexity of the situation. <laughs> but that's the key point. It's like, well, we can say we don't want to believe that because it would be awful if it were the case. But unfortunately, that's not going to change whether it's the case or not. You know, it's kind of like fear is not our friend in this particular instance. If it is possible for such effects to occur, then we might as well know it and acknowledge it. And 
also, it seems to me that the type of work you're doing is essential if we're going to parse out what makes sense and what doesn't. It seems like if we just go on the way we've been going, our choice is between a kind of naive, uh, like a willing ignorance, a chosen ignorance about such things. And we'll just keep on bloating that miscellaneous file in the back room. Or on the other hand, we can live in a completely paranoid universe where everybody's casting spells on everybody. But isn't there something in the middle that we can only discover We can only discover by investigating and asking questions and looking into these things? It's just weird the way we've been given this like Pepsi Coke choice that neither of which makes any sense, right? Yeah, this is why part of me is still a boy, guys, you know, and I'm about 14 years old, I think, is where I'm stuck sometimes. But I, this is why I'm still so fond of the X-Men mythology because, you know, that's exactly what that mythology is about. It's It's about this professor who starts this secret school and he recruits or invites all of these paranormally gifted youngsters to it who of course are inevitably hated or tortured or harassed by their own communities and he teaches them how to a accept their own abilities but b also how to integrate them into a kind of life that that isn't uh, violently opposed to the broader culture. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.